Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. This week, we're back with NATO, discussing the fallout from the summit in Vilnius. Turkey cleared the way for Sweden to join this week, and across Vilnius there were signs aplenty calling for F-16s for Ukraine and, of course, NATO membership. We'll talk about what happened at the summit and what that joint communique by the alliance means for President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. We're also going to talk about the European Union and its relations with countries eager to join, such as Ukraine and Turkey, and with one that's just left, namely the UK. Faced with the prospect of EU enlargement for the first time in over a decade, is Brussels and all those other capitals able to handle all the newcomers? How might the EU look in a decade if the list of member states grows ever larger? I've got a terrific panel of speakers to help talk about all these things. Roland Oliphant, The Telegraph's senior foreign correspondent, is with us. Welcome, Roland. Thank you. Great to have you here. And we have as well in the studio, Maria Zolkina. Hello. Great to have you with us. And you're the DNAM Fellow at the LSE and advisor to our academy. Thank you for that, too. And we have a returning voice, Galip Dale, Associate Fellow with our Middle East and North Africa program, who writes a lot about Turkey. Welcome again, Galip. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Let's start with what happened, where this summit got to. No one was quite sure going into it. But Roland, what did you make of the communique that came out? If you were going to be unkind about the communique, you would say it was the really unhappy product. It's something, you know, produced by committee. It tried to make the statement of purpose and intent, saying that one day Ukraine is going to join NATO which was the big issue going into this. And there were weeks and weeks of diplomacy trying to hammer out some kind of statement that was going to move this prospect of Ukrainian membership forward. What they ended up with was, yes, of course, Ukraine is going to join. And then there's a caveat which says, well, in due course, and when conditions are met and the conditions aren't really laid out, that kind of attempt to create a, you know, a sense of purpose seriously marred by you know, all of those diplomatic caveats put in there. Nonetheless, serious practical assistance to Ukraine seems to be continuing. What you've described came out of quite a bit of division, didn't it? We had France now agreeing to back Ukraine's membership of NATO, as well as send long-range missiles. That changed under President Macron, but then Germany showing a lot of scepticism of Kyiv's membership of NATO. Yeah, exactly. And then this has been a debate a month ahead of this division has been apparent. And you've had countries like members like Britain and Poland and the Baltic states pushing to give the Ukrainians something much more concrete. And last month, the French came alongside and said, OK, we're going to shift. We're going to um, agree with the Brits that Ukraine should not have to go through the membership action plan, which is it's a long process. It's a hazing process, right? I mean, it can go on for ages. And it's not just about whether your military is good enough to be in NATO. It's about your democratic reforms, your rule of law, like does your justice system work, all, all of these things. And it can be used to keep people out for a long time. You know, I think North Macedonia took 20 years or something. Bosnia has been in there since 1999. And that was the minimum ask the Ukrainians were putting forward. They were saying, look, we want a symbolic something that's going to say we're going to get say, somewhere. We're, we're starting on that process. Exactly. And they felt that's the minimum you can do. The fact that was delivered despite very, you know, serious objections by the Americans and the Germans on this, that's progress. Why do you think France changed? Knowing, perhaps, as you've just described, this is a very long process, it doesn't actually cost us that much to give it? Possibly. I mean, the reporting that came out of, um, you know, the French press about the thinking in the Elysee Palace around this actually used the term tactical and talked about how this would be a useful way to get Russia and Ukraine to the negotiating table. So the thought seems to be, Look, the Russians don't respond to anything unless it looks like it's serious. 
NATO ascension for Ukraine is something that they really don't like. So let's make it look like it's really going to happen. Of course, as soon as you articulate that, that makes it look like a bargaining chip that you might be prepared to to take off the table later. Maria, you're nodding quite a lot as Roland's laying out that. And obviously, this was, as you said, the subject at NATO. How has it gone down in Ukraine? In Ukraine, there were different reactions, but basically it was considered as a mistake that even the invitation was not actually declared, exactly because Ukraine didn't expect that the negotiations will start automatically after this political invitation. And the fear, which we saw on the side of the Germany on the one hand, and some kind of resistance, much stronger resistance than we expected on the side of the US, it was considered to be a mistake. I'm sorry, just what, what exactly was the mistake? The mistake that the invitation was not given to Ukraine. Right. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. But at the same time, there were some positive changes in formal relations between Ukraine and NATO. But the problem is that all those changes, like refusal from the membership action plan idea for Ukraine and some kind of speeding up the track of future accession to NATO, everything was already known by Ukrainian side before the summit. And the plan maximum was to have something more than that. And in this relation, we, we really didn't see any results. And that's why the reaction was pretty emotional on the side of politicians, much more common on the side of the experts. But now we have a lot of to do up to the Washington summit. President Zelensky had some pretty choice words, didn't he, about this? Take us into what he said. Yes, he actually named this as a kind of an absurd reaction. And he felt that something was going on behind the back of Ukraine without Ukraine. So it was before the summit and that after that, he emotionally reacted even to the pretty positive declaration and communique which came from the G7, though there was not so much ground for critics, actually. But I think everyone will come down and discussion will go back to normal. To normal, which can be quite slow moving. But Gallup, Turkey provided some of the surprises at this summit and really one of the U-turns from President Erdogan, which I guess we ought to start getting used to because he's making quite a few. And this was about Sweden's membership of NATO. What has prompted his change? I think several things has prompted this change. One of them, certain individuals and governments need credit for this because there was a very energetic diplomacy went into this breakthrough. The U.S. government deserves credit because they played quite a significant role. The NATO Secretary General deserves credit. The Turkish government, the Swedish government, all of them made efforts that took us there. But several things was key. One of them is the U.S. commitment to deliver F-16s to Turkey, which is a long-standing Turkish demand. And effectively, Turkey has linked Sweden's NATO membership bid with its request from the U.S. to get the F-16. Secondly, the Sweden introduced a tougher new anti-terrorism law, which came into effect on the June 1st. And that was one of the long-standing demand of Turkey. And the Turkey kept the issue of terrorism, anti-terrorism, high on the agenda of NATO as well. So that was another factor. The third one, several NATO countries, including like you know Canada, removed its sanctions that it previously imposed on Turkey following Turkey's military incursion in Syria in 2019. This is important for Turkey because defense industry is burgeoning. And finally, the Turkish economy played a role because of Turkey, we are witnessing this against the backdrop of an economic downturn in Turkey. For Turkey to reverse its economic downturn, it really needs better relation with the West. So an overall improved climate in Turkish-Western relationship is key for Turkey to reverse its downward economic trend.
You put it incredibly clearly, and we've done a recent podcast on Turkey, so I'm not going to go back over all that, but it's tantalising because what you're describing is really a very dramatic change in Turkey's stance that many people did not expect if Erdogan won. You're saying a more pro-Western stance by Turkey forced on it out of its economic conditions. Whether I would describe it as pro-Western or pivot to West... I'm not sure, but I think clearly there's a markedly different tone and atmosphere in the relation. Just look at the NATO summit. The President Biden and President Erdogan had a very positive meetings. The President Biden afterwards shared two tweets, one video praising Erdogan. The, the Turkish and Greek leaders had a very positive meetings to Turkish. The Erdogan had a very positive meetings with the President of the European Council. So there's a markedly different tone and atmosphere in the relationship. But that doesn't mean actually we are going to see a rupture in Turkish-Russian relationship. I think more strains uh, should be expected in Turkish-Russian relationship. Let's not forget going to this this summit. The Turkey hosted Zelensky in Istanbul. Turkey offered a very strong support for Ukraine's NATO membership. The Turkey and Ukraine expanded the defense industry cooperation. Turkey gave the Azov commanders back to Ukraine, which all of them elicited strong reaction from Russia. So the more strains in Turkish-Russian relationship should be expected. But the both sides probably will show also flexibility, pragmatism, that it's not going to end up in a rupture in the relationship because the cost of uh, such a rupture is very high. So to Turkey will remain Turkey-centric. What you've described is a very difficult balancing act of trying to work with both sides. Roland, would you describe this as one of the positive changes of the summit, that Turkey suddenly appearing to lift these objections to Sweden, which have dragged down discussions for months and months? It's definitely one of the one of the wins of the summit. I think it was one of, after Ukraine, that was one of the things we were looking at, the Telegraph, you know, and especially President Erdogan's you know, sudden demarche the day before saying, well, we're going to have to restart Turkey's strength to the European Union if you can let us in. And everyone thought, oh, God. And then, bang, it goes. So, yes, I think the alliance is generally looking quite solid, really, on these things. And Turkey's always been, you know, it's got an odd position, right? You know, it is a neighbour of Russia. It's always had to walk this kind of line. And I think it would definitely be taken in other NATO capitals as a very positive sign that, you know, he stepped aside, Sweden's going to come into the fold. And at the end of the day, you know, that's what the alliance needed to send a message of unity against Russia. And what about money? The NATO summit is traditionally the point. It's not the only point in the year when the US, among other countries, says, look, you lot have really got to step up and pay more money into the pot and spend more on your defence. Where does all that sit in NATO's credibility? It's a tricky one. And the problem is, if you're a cynic, you will also, as kind of tradition, you'll see defence ministers from various countries trying to cook the books, to be absolutely honest. I mean, we've had remarks about things like, previously, 2% was an ambition, and now it's a minimum. It was always meant to be the minimum, and they weren't meeting it, and so on. So a lot of pledges, one way or another, and we'll remember, you know, that the Zeitenwender from Olaf Scholz, about, oh, we're going to you know, lavish huge amounts of spending on the German military, so on, hasn't really come to pass in the way we might have expected from the rhetoric. And Maria, I'm going to put it to you very directly. Can Ukraine win in any sense without the US and the continued US military support? Without military support, not, of course, because Ukrainian military industry, unfortunately, was not ready to wage a war or to repel Russia's attack 
before Russia invaded on a full scale in 2022. And as of now, I think everyone in London, in Washington, in Berlin, in Paris, so like main donors and in Warsaw understand that without them begging Ukraine militarily, sending weapons, reshaping their military industries to produce something more, Ukraine will not be able to do that. And that is one of the arguments, by the way, in Kyiv, to have as much support as soon as possible to make Russia's army defeat as soon as possible, because the longer term perspective of this military support is really questionable. And the Chatham House team has put out a report arguing that the short term really matters on that. But the reason I asked you specifically about the US, because the uncertainty of what the US intends in its foreign policy and particularly some of its support, despite saying, look, we're behind Ukraine, hangs over all kinds of questions. And the uncertainty of what to expect from the US is one of the big themes in the Chatham House work really across the board at the moment. And obviously we are coming up to a presidential election, not immediately, but that is in everyone's minds and whether that might bring dramatic change. Just before we pivot and talk about Europe more widely, Roland, this was Rishi Sunak's first NATO summit. What did it tell us about the UK? Or about Rishi Sunak? <laughs> about Rishi Sunak. I mean, it, you can see from his style that he's a, he's just a different character to Boris Johnson. He's a more kind of by-the-book traditional diplomatic politician. But he's sticking very much to, you know, UK priorities. And the UK priority really is to paint itself to, to or to claim the status as Ukraine's number one friend in NATO and in the world. And I think that's uh, that's clearly a strategic choice in London. It's a relationship they want to maintain. They want to they want to be clear. They want to have the influence in Kiev and they want to they want to lead the world or to be seen to lead the world because it grants them, you know, a certain amount of credibility and leverage that is in slightly short supply since leaving the European Union. So that's why you would say the UK has chosen this stance obviously there's a lot of passion behind it a lot of public support and everything i don't think only that i mean i think look, to be absolutely honest i think since the invasion of ukraine the full-scale invasion scales kind of fell away from eyes a little bit and there was a fundamental reappraisal in whitehall and in other capitals of okay what is our essential national interest here or well, the national interest is that this war does not succeed i think that's clear but you know look ukraine is probably going to join the european union at some point in the future and it's good for Britain to have serious allies in the European Union when you're not at the table yourself. That's a really interesting thought. OK, we're now going to wheel round and talk about the European Union and which countries might be joining it. But I have been struck by how quickly the UK has rushed to make itself Ukraine's clear, solid, unwavering friend in Europe. I absolutely agree with you that it also comes out of years of grumbling and worsening relations with Russia. But also, I think the relief I felt among UK politicians of finding something to be clear on in foreign policy after all the intricacies of Brexit. I absolutely agree with that. And it's a moment of moral clarity. We're a country who's you know, our foundation myth is about 1939 and Britain alone and all of that. So suddenly we know what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. there's right and wrong and we're on the side of right. That's how it has very much been portrayed and energised in Whitehall. Right, well, let's turn to the European Union and the challenges and the possible applicants. Maria, what can you tell us about Ukraine's ties with the EU and how much people are hoping that Ukraine will join the EU? How much are they counting on that? It's very critical to understand how much Ukraine has changed in its attitude towards the European Union integration, because actually in 2022, we have completed the cycle of serious changes in public opinion. When they started in 2014, when 
East and South became completely disappointed in any kind of integration with Russia. And in 2022, after February, after Russia invaded on a large scale, so both South and East, actually all the macro regions of Ukraine are now full on a full-fledged level supporting the integration of Ukraine into the European Union. And these numbers are enormous. They're incredible. They are still... 89-91%. This is a huge bag for politicians who are pushing for, let's say, faster accession to the European Union. And European Union here, by the way, is doing also a great job, both politically and bureaucratically, because what European Union did last year is actually what, to some extent, was expected from NATO as well on Vilnius Summit. They granted the candidate status to Ukraine and set up the set of very clear conditions and criteria to open accession talks. And actually something very similar would be possible if there was a political will on the side of the NATO as well. But it wasn't the case, unfortunately. And with the European Union, Ukraine is just moving from month to month, trying to push parliament, government, uh, civil society is working to push all of them. European Union is working to push Ukrainian governmental bodies to implement those seven steps to enable actually European Commission deliver positive report in October 2023. And this will enable opening accession next year. So just give us a feel of how much people are taking this as a solid ground is definitely going to happen. I think there is no doubts, actually. So as of now, the movement towards European Union is something which is questionable in terms of times. But people believe that in a short-term perspective or in a mid-term perspective, it's going to happen, not in a long-term one. Because previously, even before 2022, even those over 55% who believed at that time, before 2022, that Ukraine should join ultimately the EU, they were thinking not in a short-term way, but rather 10, 15, 20 years. Now situation has changed. It has indeed. Gallup, President Erdogan surprised the world again this week by wanting Turkey's accession talks to the European Union reopened. What was he trying to do? Well, I think the EU membership prospect has never been realistic. Let me start with Turkey's EU membership aspiration was dashed not when the democratic regression, human rights violation become very wide in Turkey. Actually, it it was killed when Turkey was introducing one reform package after another one. So in a sense, at a time when Turkey was supposedly experiencing one of its most democratic period, and that's how it was also depicted back then in Western media, Western officials, 2004, 5, 6, 7. That was exactly when Turkey's membership prospect was killed. The French said no matter what Turkey does, it will you know, it will veto it. Germany said that, you know, the membership is not realistic. So let's talk about a privileged partnership. So that was that. But what is crucial right now, there are certain things that EU wants, certain things that Turkey wants. EU wants, for instance, a better, more cooperation refugees, Turkey's integration into EU energy transition and reduction of tension in Eastern Mediterranean between Turkey and Greece. And Turkey wants the custom union modernization with the EU, visa liberalization. So now I think an improved climate in Turkish-Western relationship can enable them to talk about the issue of common interest or concern for the sides. Because recently, in recent years, because of the overall tension in the relationships, they could not even cooperate on the subjects that were vital for both of them. Like, for instance, the question of European security. How can you discuss the question of European security in a serious manner if you don't bring Turkey, Ukraine, Britain into the conversation? Because the question of European security is not the EU security. It's European security. 
it includes the European southern neighborhood and eastern neighborhood. And just look at the Russian aggression. Russia doesn't treat eastern and southern neighborhood as two separate, two separate zones, rather than as an integrated one. Russia is in Syria, in Libya, in eastern Mediterranean, in Algeria. And in all these places, Turkey is quite a major player. You put it very well. And so Turkey's aspirations have changed and calculations. The world's changed and Europe is looking very different from back then. When, as you said, at apparent sort of high point of Turkish you know, democracy and liberalism and so on, it got a pretty flat rejection from key European countries. Roland, what do you make of these aspirations and how does the EU handle them? And the aspirations for enlargement? Yes. Yes. Well, traditionally, they've handled them by not handling them. You know, I mean, if you're that, from, is, that is indeed a tradition. If you yes. if you if you're from the Balkans, you would be. I mean, you know, Balkan countries are very close to becoming as disillusioned with the European Union, understanding that this is never going to happen. And people who worry about security in the Balkans are incredibly frustrated with that. The reason for that is people talk about enlargement fatigue. People talk about the tiredness of publics with cheap labour showing up on their doorsteps and all of that, the burden you're going to take on of more relatively poor ex-communist countries, which are going to require more reconstruction and things like that. This is one of the dilemmas that's going to, you know, face Brussels and so on. If they're going to fast track Ukrainian membership for kind of obvious reasons, because there's an existential, you know, huge war going on there. What about the Balkans? Are they going to be left out again with this strange gap in the map? And if you go down there, um, and, you know, I was doing some reporting on the Serbian-Bulgarian border a while ago. You can wander across it very easily. It's completely porous. There's a lack of clarity, really, I think, and purpose in Brussels about this kind of thing. Do you think there is a clarity about fast-tracking Ukrainian membership? Is that realistic, these hopes that Zelensky has got up and many Ukrainian people share? I'm beginning to feel like it's a little bit more likely than a fast-track NATO membership. But you're going to face the same issues because when push comes to shove... The Dutch, the French are still going to have the same objections to letting Ukraine in. It's 40 million people, a lot of cheap labor. Huge agricultural economy. Huge agricultural economy, all these competitive issues. Those issues are 10 times bigger than they are with letting Serbia in, for example. So that's a massive issue from the political point of view. Once you let Ukraine in with you know the biggest, most battle-hardened army in Europe, and you put them alongside the Poles, who are spending a lot and so on, and, and have a different kind of attitude you begin to get a different kind of nexus of power. You get a very different European Union. Maria, what do you think if the accession talks don't really advance? I think that there will be no, so to say, extremely fast track for Ukraine to the European Union because as of now, we are coming just to implementation of very concrete steps. And after these criteria are implemented, there will be just bureaucratic work, which will be technical and boring and, and everything will be assessed like regularly. And if Ukraine actually fulfills all the accession provisions as soon as accession talks are open, fast then the assessments will be fast and positive. So a lot will depend real and domestic work in Ukraine. But I agree partially that politically it will be a lot of troubles in the European Union. The only argument I can actually argue here with my colleague is that about the cheap labor force, because as of now we have over 11 millions of Ukrainian refugees, absolute majority of them are in EU, and no disaster happened on the labor market. Germany, Poland, they all have benefited just from Ukrainian refugees who started seeking for a job last year, and over 60 and some 
countries over 70% are already have already found the job. So basically, there was no problem so far with domestic public and we don't expect it will happen. That's a really interesting point. Gallup, from your perspective, if Turkey gets another go slow, words of enthusiasm, but then nothing really happens, what would the effect be? Well, I think on particularly on the EU membership prospect, I don't expect any progress there. But I think we can expect more positive or more cooperation on the issues that are vital for both sides. So I do anticipate a bit more progress on this front. You made that point very well of how to cooperate without being part of the European Union. I think right now the EU membership framework is a hindrance, not an opportunity for Turkey-EU cooperation. So we actually need to come up with a new framework where both sides can discuss the issues more freely because like the membership process is premised on the transformation of domestic politics, domestic political order. This is not very viable when the end result is not there, when basically the carrot is not there. So I do anticipate more engagement on defense industry, on security, on refugees, on the Turkey will be probably pushing more for the custom union modernization. But however, there can still be a road accident, both at Turkey EU level, Turkey NATO level. For instance, the prolongation of the ratification process for Sweden might create some troubles because the Turkish parliament goes into recess next week and it's going to reconvene on October 1st, so we are talking about like more than two and two and a half months. The question of the F-16 still needs to come to the U.S. Congress. So let's see how it's going to be. Uh, it's a very good there. reminder that it's not all. Exactly. Um, it's not. It's not. It's not all a done so deal. There is always room for a little we should, we should, stumble. Exactly. We should hold our breath until it's finalized. So now the Turkey has greenlighted, but the accession protocols needs to be ratified by the parliament. Erdogan party itself doesn't have majority, its alliance has majority, and the nationalist is not very in favor of the Swedish accession, and actually the leader of the nationalist party, which is Erdogan's coalition uh, ally, has voiced his criticism. Many key actors uh, still need to do a lot of work, starting with, I think, the, the Turkish Prime Minister Hakan Fidan, the US Secretary of State Blinken, they did a lot of work. I think they will still need to continue to do work until it's ratified. Okay, so maybe we should not urge people to hold their breath until it's <laughs> until it's done, or they will be without oxygen. Roland, just finally to wrap this up for us, where does that leave post Brexit Britain? I think post Brexit Britain, as I kind of alluded to this earlier, there's a reason why Britain is making itself as active as possible in the Ukraine war, and not just because it's very clearly in Britain's national interest that Ukraine wins the war. I think that's the overriding thing, but. It's the reality. We don't have a seat at the top table in Europe anymore, and we need friends. You're going to see a lot more outreach to all of these countries and all of these things because, what's the word, kind of like homeopathic control. You know, you can't be there, but maybe some kind of particle of your interest will transmit through the air. I'm not a um, big fan of homeopathy, <laughs> so let, let's not... I mean, you, you, want, you, want, you want a more than homeopathic kind of yeah. lever. Um, you want some influence, I think yes, it's called. Exactly. We won't go down the soft power road mm. either, but um, yeah, you want you want some influence. No, well, thank you for that last thought on tactics for Britain. We're going to have to stop there. There's much, much to talk about in what is a very fluid, constantly changing picture of these relationships. But for the moment, that's it. So a big thank you to all my guests, Roland Oliphant, Maria Zolkina and Gallup Dalle. Do follow them all on Twitter. The links will be in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow and subscribe. And I always ask, please do leave us a review. It matters to us. 
To read more from our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member, and we'd really love to have you, don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org where you can find the work of all our programmes. Goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you for listening. <laughs>